Before we get started, we always take time to have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure everyone is in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The word there, regard, means to look at. And so that means that if we look and examine ourselves, which is the same kind of terminology Paul uses over in 1 Corinthians 11 to those who have undergoing divine discipline in Corinth because of the way they abused the Lord's table because they failed to examine themselves, which is a, another way of talking about con- the need for confession of sin. That uh, So this Psalm 66, 18 is basically talking about the same thing, that we need to... Uh, evaluate what's going on in our lives, and if we see that there is sin in our life, then we need to confess it. Uh, that's not for salvation. Salvation's by faith in Jesus Christ, is the one who died on the cross for our sins. But once we're saved, we still sin. We still have a uh, sin nature, and so we need to deal with that. And that comes through confession of sin. When we confess our sins, First John 1, 9 says, then God is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins that we confess, as well as to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege we have to come together to fellowship around your word, to be reminded of the eternal truths of Scripture, to get us to focus our thinking away from the details of life and the problems, the adversity, the circumstances, the stress, whatever's going on in our life, that we put our hope and trust in you. For we recognize that there is no hope in any other source. There's no happiness in any other source. There's no joy that all comes from you, and we need to get our minds right and focused upon you, and we need to reevaluate the priorities of our life that we might be focused upon your word, that your word may may reshape our thinking and that we may be transformed from the inside out. Fathers, we study your word uh, tonight, especially in this tremendous song of praise from Hannah. We pray that God the Holy Spirit would help us to see how we need to Think about the principles that are uh, enunciated here that lie behind these statements and that they need to be very much part of our life as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And as we look at this verse, this is, as I pointed out last time, this is a psalm of, of praise. It is a declaration of triumph in Hannah's life at the end of years of problems. And we all face that at times. Nobody gets out of this life without going through some adversity. And some have gone through more, some have gone through less. But even if you've gone through less, it's still been devastating. And I I have come to realize over the years that as you get to know people, you realize that everybody has faced heartache and disappointment. Everybody has faced failure. Everybody faces different things that have gone on in their own life that God has allowed to take place in our lives to teach us and to train us and to bring us closer to him. Hannah's situation was that she was unable to have any children. This was a critical thing in that culture at that time, and in the Jewish culture it was very significant because they traced this back to the thinking 
of Genesis chapter 315, that it would be through the seed of the woman that redemption would come. And it was the desire of every Jewish woman to have a male child in the hopes that if he was not the seed, he would be in the line of the seed. And so uh, Hannah is uh, foiled in that because the Lord had closed her womb. And she goes through some years where not only is she faced with the personal disappointment of not being able to have children, but she is tormented by the second wife that her husband had taken in order to provide uh, children to carry on his uh, his line. And so she is tormented, and she is ridiculed, and she's looked down upon uh, every day. And so she's faced with this circumstance in the home every day where she is facing failure. And we know today that that's a major problem that everybody deals with is failure from uh, lots of different things, and it creates guilt, it creates bitterness, it creates anger, frustration. All kinds of things come out of our sin nature in order to respond to negative circumstances. And many of us are driven to try to solve that problem through wrong ways, through the sin nature. And Hannah did not do that. She may have done that at points, but ultimately her solution is the divine solution. She turns to God as the only one who can solve her problems. And that's the lesson, that's the focal point that we see in this uh, uh, psalm of declarative praise. This is a song, but it is, as I pointed out last time, it is ultimately was to be put to music and was sung. Whenever we look at any hymns that we sing, they're basically the words, the lyrics are basically poetry, and that's a good starting point for learning to appreciate and identify what makes uh, a good hymn. It should be good poetry and a focus on that. And so we see this, an example of divinely inspired poetry here in uh, chapter 2 in these first 10 verses. And what she is expressing is tremendous joy. She is exulting in what God has done for her. And several times you see uh, you see this word, it's translated exalted in verse 1 in the third line, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Uh, you know, one of my little pet peeves is when you have a word in the Hebrew that as you go through a passage, when that word is repeated three or four times, it should be translated the same by the same English word each time so that people can understand that there's a connection. And we totally miss this again in this, this translation. When you look at verse 7, verse 7 says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. And that word there is the same word. It should be translated, He brings low and He exalts. That way you get an understanding of what one of the major themes is in this in this psalm. Verse 8, he raises the poor from the dust, and he exalts the beggar from the ash heap. Same word, lifting the beggar from the ash heap. It's not an ash heap, by the way. It's a manure pile, but uh, we want to really make sure you get the imagery there so that you can really just, just smell what, where the beggar's living. And then we get to verse 10. And we have, at the end, it's translated with the same word, exalt. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So we see four times this word is used in these uh, ten verses. And so that tells us that the focal point of this hymn is, is joy. It is Hannah's 
uh, exuberance at how God has rescued her and delivered her from these circumstances, and he has become the source of her joy. So we begin by uh, looking at that opening verse, Hannah prayed and said, and then the psalm begins. And we have four lines there in verse 1 that express that. Now, as we look at this, these 10 verses, I changed the terminology here a little bit from when I showed this slide last time, but this is roughly the outline. And it emphasizes God's sovereignty over human history. Another way to put that is simply Jesus Christ controls history or God controls history, the Lord controls history. And so in verse, verses 1b, that's basically most of 1, through 3, the focus is on the sovereignty of God. He rules over the affairs of men. And then in verses uh, 4 through 5, we see he overrides the plans of men. God works out his desire. And often what man thinks will happen, what man is pursuing, what human beings are trying to accomplish gets overruled by God, and he changes things. And then there's a return to the theme of uh, Yahweh's unique sovereignty in verses 6 and 7. And then in the first part of um, verse 8, we see this return to the sovereignty of God. He overrides the plans of man at the beginning of verse verse 8. Uh, actually, that should be 7 and 8, I think. Uh, no, 8A. And then he... Uh, turn back to from 8b to 10a is his unique sovereignty again, and then finishing up with the theme of of kingship. So that gives us our structure. We'll go through it as we analyze the verses. Hannah prays, and at the beginning, this word pr- prayer is the word palal in the Hebrew, which means to pray or to intercede. Now, if this is a psalm of praise and it is a prayer, then what does that tell us? It tells us that praise is prayer and prayer is praise. We live in a world today which has, in an evangelical climate, which has perverted the meaning of the word praise, where praise has been dumbed down to where it equals music and certain kinds of music. And we hear this terminology of praise music and praise choruses. I like to contrast the choruses that are often sung in modern uh, praise services with what uh, what I sang when I was a kid and what was typical for, for certain children's music as Bible choruses because the emphasis was on the content of the Bible, whereas many modern praise choruses repeat the same words over and over and over again. As I pointed out last time, the focal point is on the person and the first person uh, verbs, I mean, first-person pronouns are uh, heavily emphasized throughout many of these modern uh, praise courses. And it's, in other words, it's all about me and my experience with God, and it's not about God. Whereas what we see when we go through a psalm like this is it's all about God, it's not about me. In fact, the first-person pronoun, my, is only used at the very uh, at the very beginning in those first two lines, uh, first lines, my heart, my horn, I smile at my enemies and I rejoice. And after we get out of this first verse, that's, that's the end of the focus. But even when you read that, the focal point in 2-1 is not on what Hannah is personally experiencing in terms of her emotions, 
but on what God has done for her that has brought this uh, brought this about. So she has uh, uh, written this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's a psalm of praise. It expresses her prayer. She's thought about this. And this is something that people can do, and I know people do this individually. You can think about your own experience and write your own. You may not be a great poet, but the mental exercise of going through uh, the attempt to write out what God has done for you in terms of a prayer can have great benefit. We, as evangelicals coming from our sort of pietistic uh, stream, if you look at the history of Christianity, you have the rise of, of a movement, a more subjective movement in some ways, a little bit mystical, but it was very much a part of our heritage back in the late 1600s and, seven, and early 1700s called pietism. And pietism was contrasted to a cold, sort of a cold, dead orthodoxy that had developed uh, in, especially in Lutheranism, in uh, continental uh, evangelicalism at, at that particular time. And it was an emphasis more on a personal relationship with God. We use the word pious and pietistic in a more negative way today, but that's not how they understood it. They understood that to refer to someone whose relationship with God was more personal than formal, uh, less, uh, less based on a creed, what they would call creedal, than a, an individual personal walk in relationship, uh, relationship with the, with the, with the Lord. And, uh, as a result of that, in that stream that's influenced us, we, we as sort of Bible church, uh, Christians, have a heritage that comes out of late 16, uh, late 17th century pietism. It comes uh, into some level out uh, influences that come out of Wesleyanism, which manifested itself with the Keswick movement, Victorious Life movement, a lot of which we, we don't agree with, but people who were prominent in the Victorious Life and Keswick movement as Bible teachers were people like C.I. Schofield and Lewis Berry Chafer and others, even though they didn't hold to that sort of Keswick view of, of, of Victorious Life thinking. So there's a stream of heritage from uh, the Wesleyan view. It's less... Uh, less Calvinistic. We also have a heritage that comes out of a Baptist background in that we believe that uh, baptism is a sign or a symbol of uh, what happened at the instant of salvation, and that baptism is for believers only. We don't uh, sprinkle, we don't have infant baptism, so we have, and we believe in the separation of church and state. There's only two things that make a Baptist a Baptist. A lot of Baptists don't understand this. I've asked Baptist preachers if they know this, and most of them that I've asked did not know what made a Baptist a Baptist. It was interesting. I was in a Baptist church in Mystic, Connecticut, with a uh, Jewish, non-Messianic, Jewish urologist friend of mine, and uh, he's quite knowledgeable and quite well-read, and I said, by the way, do you know what makes a Baptist a Baptist? He said, yes. He said, if they believe in baptism by immersion and they believe in separation of church and state. And I thought, bingo, he's got it. A lot of Baptists don't understand that. That's what makes a Baptist a Baptist. And it's not anything to do with the Messiah or Christ or substitutionary atonement or faith alone in Christ alone or any of these other things that, that 
come along, what distinguished Baptists coming out of the Protestant Reformation was that they, unlike their other Protestant uh, strands, Lutherans and Calvinists and others, they believed in separation of church and state and baptism by immersion, believers' baptism. So that's what makes a Baptist a Baptist. And so we come out of that heritage. We're influenced by that. We're also influenced to a certain degree by Calvinism. There are a lot of positive things that came out of the Calvinistic uh, part of the Reformation, the uh, French-Swiss Reformation and the German-Swiss Reformation uh, kind of merged together where you have a merger of those who were under the tutelage of John Calvin in Geneva and those who came out of a uh, influence from people like Balthazar Hubmeyer and Ulrich Zwingli in uh, in uh, uh, Zurich in the uh, in the Protestant Reformation, and so we believe in a view of the uh, of the Lord's Table that is a memorial view of the Lord's Table that was first articulated very clearly by Ulrich Zwingli, who was the reformer that came out of out of Zurich. Calvin didn't hold to that view. Luther didn't hold to that view. So that was something distinctive. So as we sit here, we are really the heirs to a lot of different streams of, of evangelical theology. Well, part of that that we should honor and that we should represent is that element, as I've pointed out, that comes out of pietism, that more personal relationship with God. And we don't always do things like this, but writing out our prayers and thinking them through should be part of our heritage. You go to some churches, you go to high church, um, high church worship at an Anglican church or Episcopal church, uh, some Presbyterian churches, they read all their prayers. They're all written out ahead of time. And they read them, and they're a little more formal. And some people think, well, that's not very spiritual. He wrote them out three days ago. Well, you've got a book of 150 prayers in the Bible that were thoughtfully written out and prepared ahead of time, and they would be repeated frequently, word for word, at the, at the feast days in the temple. We live in a world that because of our sort of Baptist heritage, everything's got to be extemporaneous. And we think the more extemporaneous, the more spiritual. Well, that's not true. There's nothing wrong with being extemporaneous. I'm also pointing out that there's nothing wrong with really thinking through your prayers and maybe writing some out in a, a little more elevated style, which gives you and I, when we do something like that, the discipline to meditate upon the Word and upon just exactly what God has done so it's not just something that we're quickly uh, spouting off. If you were going to go, think about another administration. Don't think about this this president. Think about another administration. If you were going to go to the White House and you were going to have three minutes with the president, pick your favorite president, and you were going to talk to him, don't you think you would probably write out very carefully very conscientiously what it was you were going to say when you came into his presence to make sure that you got everything in as, as, as succinctly and just the way you wanted it said. Of course you would. And we ought to think about prayer like that a little bit, that it demands a little more thought than most of us give to it and a little more uh, effort and uh, intellectual activity. And that's what we see in Hannah. Hannah's developed this over a period of time 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which does give it a level of excellence that ours will never achieve, but it, it still serves as, as a pattern. So she prays, and this is what she says, and this is what's covered in the next, uh, in the next ten, ten verses. So just a couple of points about prayer. Prayer is communication with God. Prayer is just talking to God. In a lot of ways, we can talk very somewhat informally with the Lord. If you read the Psalms, there are times when uh, the writers of the Psalms express their frustration and and anger and their and, and the fact that they're really upset about some of the things that God is doing. It's an honest and open communication with God as we think through what who God is and what he is doing in our lives. Basically, I try to summarize the elements of prayer in an acronym, C-A-T-S. It includes confession, adoration, thinking through who God is, praising him for who he is and what he has done, uh, thanksgiving, uh, thanking God for what he has done, and supplication. Supplication includes two things, that supplication is asking God for things, some things for other people, that's intercession, and sometimes we're asking God for things for ourselves, that's petition. So these are the elements in prayer. Now, some prayers are purely confession. We have some what we call penitential psalms or confession psalms like Psalm 51. It's just about confession and ends with praise to God. You have other uh, other psalms like the one we're looking at that's primarily adoration. It's declarative praise, praising God for what he has done and there is uh, assumed within this an element of thanksgiving, even though there is no overt statement of thanks to God. It clearly expresses uh, gratitude and thanks to God. Other prayers may be purely supplication. We pray for specific instance for, for other people and for ourselves. So prayer doesn't always have to include all four elements. It can include any one of these elements. It can include confession and then a large part of another element. But these are basic elements that are evident in prayer. As I pointed out earlier, prayer gets nowhere without confession, Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That was just as true. Uh, that's just as true today as it was in the Old Testament. And then another last point I want to remind you of. Prayer in and of itself isn't a spiritual skill. Prayer in and of itself isn't a spiritual skill. It's not a problem-solving device. It is a tool that expresses one or more spiritual skill. Confession is a spiritual skill. It's first problem-solving device. We have to get back in fellowship. So that's expressed through prayer. Faith rest drill, where we're claiming promises, that's also expressed through prayer. Uh, grace orientation, expressing our gratitude to God, that's also expressed through prayer. Prayer is just the vehicle through which often we apply those spiritual skills uh, in our life. So prayer incorporates several of these in its, in its expression. And as we see here, we talk about the um, tenth problem-solving device as joy, sharing the happiness of God, I would say that, that Hannah is clearly expressing that in her great joy for what God has done for her 
in this psalm. So that's expressed through prayer at this particular time, and that is stated right at the very uh, outset as she talks about uh, her joy. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. And that word exalt is parallel to the verb rejoice, that is expressing this this great joy, this great enthusiasm and excitement that that Hannah has because of the way God has intervened in her life to bring about uh, the birth of her son Samuel. Now, as we just go through these verses and look at the at the structure here, I want to point out a couple of things just by way of observation. Some of you have gone through the. Uh, the class that I taught uh, a year or so ago on Bible study methods, how to study the Bible. Basically, I, I, I if I do that again, I'm going to rename it. I'm going to call it How to Read the Bible Intelligently because this is basically what that what that is. It's how to read the Bible intelligently, how the everyday believer can sit down and read their Bible in a more intelligent way, coming to understand what it means, how to look up words, how to figure out what the Greek or Hebrew word is behind the English word, how to think about the structure, the organization, all of those different things, uh, most of which fits under the first step of reading anything. And when we think about the steps in Bible study methods, it's observation, interpretation, and application. So if you sit down and read the Constitution of the United States, which part of that don't you use? Trick question. You use all of that. You sit down and you read a real estate contract. Which part of those three elements do you not use? None of them. I mean, anything you read in life, you observe it. What is it saying? You think about what it means. That's interpretation. And then you answer the question, what does this mean to me? How is this going to impact my life? How should this impact my thinking? What am I learning from this? So those are your basic three stages in in anything. And that first stage is observation, thinking about what is being said here. And a lot of that just involves structure, thinking about why what is being said and then asking the questions that we will wait to answer perhaps in, in, as we as we approach it, is why is it said this way? That's more of an interpretive question. As I point out in reading the Bible, a lot of people spend if you look at those three things, observation, interpretation, application, you ought to spend 80% of your time in observation. If you do the interpretation, what does it mean is going to pretty much become obvious. If you're spent 80% of your time just looking at what the text says, and the application is going to be pretty obvious at the end. So if you spend 20% of your time doing observation, you'll spend about 15% of your time doing interpretation. What's the result going to be? It's going to be pretty obvious what God expects you to do. That's going to fall out pretty easily. The trouble is most people don't want to take the time to observe. They don't want to think about the text. So they spend 5% of the time doing observation. They spend about 15% of the time doing interpretation. But because they haven't observed the text, their answers to the interpretive questions are probably wrong most of the time. And then they spend the rest of the time doing application, which means that's also going to be wrong because they didn't understand the passage to begin with because they didn't think about it enough. 
So we always have to think about, well, what does this passage passage say? Well, first thing we ought to notice is that we have this first-person pronoun four times. I already mentioned that, where Hannah starts with what God has done for her. But she's not really focusing on her emotions per se, but she's really focusing on the Lord. The object and the focus is on the Lord. She uses verbs, and I missed one here. I should have highlighted the smile with red also. Rejoice, exalt, smile, and rejoice. What is she talking about? She's enthusiastic. She's excited about what God has done for us. She is happy. She has joy because of what God has done for her. So those these four lines all emphasize some aspect of her joy and her exaltation. But it's the Lord that has done this. And so we see that uh, Lord mentioned twice. It's uppercase, so that means it's Yahweh. Uh, she's rejoicing in the Lord. He is the source of her joy. Her joy is not in her circumstances. Her joy is in the Lord. And because of that, she can smile at her enemies, who are the Lord's enemies, as I pointed out last time. When we are walking with the Lord and we come to a certain level of maturity, we realize that our enemies are his enemies and his enemies are our enemies. And she is rejoicing in salvation. So the thought moves from her joy to how God has delivered her. That's how we should think about things in life, is is focus on our joy comes from the Lord because he has delivered us. He's provided for us. He's given us. He's strengthened us. He's done something on our behalf. Now, if we take the ideas that are present there, which is that God has delivered us and the result is joy, then we go and we look at the last, the very last verse in this psalm, in Psalm 210. And we see a similar emphasis on the Lord. It's the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Who are the adversaries of the Lord? Those are the enemies. Hannah says her enemies, but she moves it to a higher level by the time she ends the psalm from my enemies to the Lord's adversaries. They'll be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, as we look at that, see, it talks about the adversaries of the Lord at the beginning, and then we have the Lord mentioned again, uh, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, but that's, that line is parallel to the line above it, from heaven. Who lives in heaven? The Lord. It's not from heaven is just some astronomical uh, location. It is the dwelling place of God, and that's what's seen by the parallelism with the Lord. It is the Lord's heaven where this originates. And so often we, you'll find in Scripture that heaven is put in place of the Lord, especially in poetry, as a synonymous parallelism because that's the location of the Lord's throne and his his dwelling. So the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. 
This is a prophetic statement. She moves from her present circumstance to where she sees how this fits in the angelic conflict. Now, I reviewed the angelic conflict last time, how Satan led a revolt against God in eternity past. A third of the angels followed him. He challenged God's verdict as being unjust. And so God then gives him an object lesson, which is human history, to demonstrate the justness of eternal condemnation in the lake of fire because any act of, of disobedience, any act of sin, any act, no matter how small it may be, like something inconsequential like eating a piece of fruit, any act that is in disobedience to God sends a shock wave through all of God's creation that brings so many horrid, unintended consequences that an eternal death penalty in fiery hell is a just penalty. And so God's going to demonstrate that. Adam ate a piece of fruit, and because of that, all the wars, all the famines, all the economic uh, catastrophes, all the meteorological catastrophes, all of the plagues, all of the pestilences, all of the horrors that have existed in human history, all get traced back to one minor, it appears, one almost inconsequential act of disobedience to God. And so God is demonstrating to Satan that any act, no matter how apparently inconsequential is it, any act of independence from God has irreversible and horrible consequences. So what we see here is that, that Hannah, as she meditates upon what God has done for her, in solving her problem through the gift of, of this son, Samuel, that, that she sees where she fits within this cosmic conflict, that ultimately the provision of Samuel, who's the prophet who's going to anoint the king who will deliver the nation from the Philistines, but that it is through this, this king that Samuel anoints that, that God is going to bring another greater king who will provide salvation and deliverance from everybody, for everybody. Notice how she moves from her deliverance in her little universe, in her little world, in some obscure village about eight miles north of Jerusalem. She moves from that to realizing that this fits within the cosmic conflict and ultimately reflects upon the salvation of all mankind. And in some sense, we can all do something parallel to that because the, the traumas, the difficulties, the adversities, the challenges we all fit are not uh, are not random. They're not chance. They all fit within what God is doing in my life, and what God is doing in my life, and what God is doing in your life fits within the pattern of what God is doing in creating a body of mature believers who will rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom, and that all fits with his ultimate victory over Satan in the angelic conflict. So nothing that happens in your life or my life is inconsequential. It all fits within a broader pattern. We may not see it now, how, how it fits, but it's ultimately going to be part of God's incredible victory over Satan and the destruction of all the forces of evil that will occur at, at the end of the tribulation in Armageddon and eventually at the end of the millennial kingdom. So Hannah puts it there. She sees what's happened in her life as... As, as a microscopic look at how God brings about justice in the universe. He will thunder against them. He will judge the ends of the earth. This is what will come about eventually. There is accountability. And what happens is he will, this will 
ultimately occur when his king is established. He will give strength to his king, which is parallel to the phrase he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Now look at this. In the first verse, she says, my horn is exalted. Now, what does that mean? Well, we've got to look at that phrase, my horn, but basically it means my power, my, my prestige. I'm lifted up. My power is exalted by the Lord. But what's going to happen in history, history eventually? He's going to exalt the horn of his anointed against his enemies, and his adversaries. And the word there for anointed is the word Mashiach, meaning Messiah, that's parallel to his king. Here's this this woman who lives in an obscure village in, in Israel, and God has given her one of the most significant messianic prophecies that we see in the Bible. She connects the dots between what happens in, in, in God's answer to her prayer and the ultimate resolution of the angelic conflict and God's provision of a Messiah. That is phenomenal. Hannah is not some woman who is a, a problem because she, she, she whined and mewed about uh, the difficulties in her life. She saw the solution, she focused on it, and God has exalted her because he focused on her. So what we see in this first verse is that God is the source of our joy. He's the one who delivers us from the problems and adversities of life, whatever they might be, and he is the source of our strength in, uh, in oppression. Whatever it is, whether the oppression is the problems you've got with your own sin nature or whether the oppression has to do with external circumstances, economic circumstances, social circumstances, uh, physiological circumstances, whatever it may be, God is the one who strengthens us in those circumstances. That doesn't mean they go away. For Hannah, there were years where she is being uh, verbally abused and ridiculed by her adversary, Penina. And she she sees no deliverance. It, it, God doesn't answer our prayers immediately. When we come to 1 Corinthians 10.13 and the promise that there's no testing taken you, but such is a common demand, but God will make a way to escape, that doesn't mean we get away from it. It's a way that we can endure it by being faithful to God and applying the word, even though that pressure, even though those circumstances still continue. And so we learn throughout this hymn that God is the one who is the source of our joy, not our circumstances. If your mental state of happiness is based on circumstances, how you feel, how you look, how people respond to you, how they praise you, then to the degree that you're dependent upon people and circumstances and emotions for your happiness, to that degree you are a slave to those people, those circumstances, and those emotions. And so every time we sit and we think, well, I'm not happy because of this, what we're saying is this controls my happiness. This is what controls my stability. This is what gives the real source of joy in my life. And we have to learn to think about it and say, no, the source of joy in my life is in God's sovereign control over things, 
and that I have a purpose. He has saved me for a reason, and I am here to serve him, and that should be the source of my joy, and that should be the source of my happiness. And then we can have stable emotions because our focus is on the only one who is stable. He is immutable. He never changes. But if you think happiness is somehow related to your job or your job performance or your level of success or your academics or your grades or how people like you or don't like you or how you look in the mirror or don't look in the mirror, if you think that that your happiness is based on on any one of those things, then that's always going to change because all those things are mutable. They're going to change. They're going to vacillate. One day they're one way. Another day they're another way. But God never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his love for you and his love for me will never change. It's always the same. It's always a maximum amount of love. And it was demonstrated for us at the cross. And so we can have emotional stability because our focus is on the rock, who is the only source of our our stability. So Hannah prays, and she starts off by saying, My heart rejoices in the Lord. Now, the word heart in Scripture is a word that that rarely, I think there's only one or two examples, where it refers to the biological organ. Uh, Mostly it refers to the inner part of man. It refers to the inner makeup of man. It refers to the core of our being. Sometimes it's synonymous with soul. Sometimes it's synonymous with the thinking of our soul. And on a few occasions, it relates to emotion. But primarily the focus by the word heart is on our thinking. And joy in the scripture isn't just emotion. Joy is a mental attitude. Jesus Christ said, my joy I give to you. Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, never had a diminishing of his joy. Well, wait a minute. The night before he went to the cross, he went through a lot of sorrow and grief as he struggled with his destiny to go to the cross the next day. That's right. But he still had perfect joy. See, we want to juxtapose those things and say, well, I'm either this or I'm that. I'm either joy or I'm sad. But sometimes we can have the joy of the Lord, but we also experience grief and sorrow and sadness at a, at a lower level. But it's controlled by the joy. Paul said that we are to grieve, but not like those who have no hope when somebody dies. We grieve, but we still have joy. We can count all things, good things, bad things, difficult things, joy, because we understand their framework in Scripture. So Hannah is saying, my heart, that is who I am at the core of my thinking, my mental attitude is focused on the Lord. It's stable, and I have uh, maximum joy. So she says, my heart... Uh, rejoices in the Lord. And this is the word alatz in the Hebrew, which means to exalt, it means to be glad, it means to be joyous, and it means to rejoice and even to exalt. So it is a synonym for the next word, which we'll look at, which is exalt. Now, this is expressed in several different uh, passages and translated exalt in some of these passages. For example, in Psalm 511, we read, But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. So what's the key to having this kind of joy? It's taking refuge in the Lord. When we're faced with the assaults of life, we take refuge in the Lord, and there we have 
uh, joy. We have gladness here. Uh, Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them that those who love your name may exalt in you. That's the expression of our gladness. So we take refuge in the Lord, and our mental attitude is of of uh, stability and joy. And so Hannah expresses this. She has taken refuge in the Lord. In Psalm 9-2, the psalmist says, I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. In other words, be able to exalt or have this kind of joy is related to being in right relationship to God and focused upon Him. Another use is in Psalm 25-2, O my God, in you I trust. See, the one in Psalm 5.11 who takes refuge in the Lord is the one who trusts in the Lord. And he goes on to say, do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Why? Because I am exalting in the Lord. And then in Psalm 68.3, but let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let, let them rejoice exceedingly. So again, we rejoice because of our relationship with God. That's the key for having, having joy. So Hannah is filled with gratitude. Her mental attitude is focused upon the Lord. She's taken refuge in the Lord to to aid her and strengthen her in the midst of uh, troubles. And the result is she is able to exalt in the Lord. The next line, she says, is that my horn is exalted by the Lord. Now here, it's interesting because in, in the Hebrew, we have the same preposition, which is the Hebrew letter B which just means in or by or with. It's, it's parallel to the Greek preposition in, E-N, and it can have the understanding of location in the house or it can have a, the sense of, of uh, means, which is instrumentality by means of something. And so in the first line, it's used to reference in the Lord because in, in the relationship with the Lord. But in the second line, my horn is exalted. I think here it should be translated by the Lord because it is the Lord who is lifting her up. It's the Lord who's her strength. It is by the Lord that she is uh, experiencing uh, this this uh, victory over the uh, difficulties that she has faced. Now, we look at this phrase, my horn, and we have to understand that this is not a literal statement. She's not going out in, going into her closet and pulling out a ram's horn, and and saying this is what's exalted, the the term horn is it was an idiom to refer to power, to refer to uh, what gave you influence and power over others, and it it derives from from fact many of you have seen videos uh, where you have these bighorn sheep and the males uh, battle for out for territory, and they run at each other with an incredible speed and butt heads, and you just hear this like a thunderclap as those horns hit each other. That's power. And so it's from that, observing that kind of thing with animals with horns, uh, male animals with horns fighting each other, that you get this uh, imagery and metaphor developed for power. And so the horn was thought to be that which gave the animal power and strength and control over others. And so that's what she's talking about because she's been in a, in a situation where she was being ridiculed and abused and put down by her rival, and now her prestige has been elevated. 
her influence within the home has been elevated because she has had a child. And so she says her horn has been exalted or lifted up uh, by the Lord. The term horn or the metaphor horn also relates to uh, the imagery of the power influence of a king. And, and so there is a, a, a thought that comes here because the word is often used in relation to the power of a king, and it's used in Psalm 89, 17, and 89 twice. And whenever we think of Psalm 89, uh, we ought to think about the, the Davidic covenant. Psalm 89 is a meditation by David on this covenant that God made with him that, that through him would come the, the Messiah. And so in Psalm 89:17 he says, "For you are the glory of their strength and by your favor, that's the word grace, our horn is exalted. The influence of David in history is lifted up by God's grace. Psalm 89:24, my faith, God is speaking, my faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him that is the seed of David, and in my name his horn, will be exalted. His influence, his power, his prestige will be will be lifted up. And so there is a reference here to, to uh, uh, the power that, that God is going to exalt in the Messiah. And then we have it in another one of my favorite verses that, that comes as parallel to, to uh, Hannah's uh, psalm, Psalm 18, uh, picks up a lot of the same ideas, but here we have these these uh, various words that are used to describe God and His power. The Lord is my rock, and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. There's that word horn again. The the power of my salvation. So God is described here as a rock, a fortress, a deliverer. Uh, a place of refuge, a shield, and the horn of my salvation is stronghold. Those are great terms to describe how God protects us. That's where I picked up the imagery of the of the soul fortress. God is the one who fortifies our soul in times uh, in times of difficulty and in times of trouble. So this is a uh, a phrase that when when she talks that her strength, her power comes from the Lord, it doesn't come from herself. We see the uh, mirror of this idea in the New Testament as Paul is uh, is struggling with his uh, 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 the the angel or the messenger of Satan. Uh, the thorn in the flesh, which I believe was a, a demon who was uh, behind the opposition, oppression, and uh, uh, at, at adversity, testing, and torture of the Apostle Paul, the persecution of Paul. And he prayed to God to remove this. And God said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect, or it's brought to completion in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's grace orientation, is to realize God's grace is sufficient for us. That's the same thing that, that Hannah is expressing here, is that my horn is exalted in the Lord. The Lord is the one who gives me strength. It's grace orientation. He, His grace is sufficient for me, and she's expressing that. Uh, through this idiom that my horn is exalted in in the Lord. And so she then goes on to say, as we look at verse the, the next line, um, uh, 
she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. And this word here is the Hebrew word uh, ravam, uh, and it basically has the idea of being hired, be lifted up and exalted, and it's used in verse 1, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 10, four times in this these 10 verses indicating this is a major theme of, of this particular psalm. And what she recognizes is if the Lord doesn't exalt us, then we're not exalted. Put it another way, if the Lord doesn't build a house, then those who build it labor in vain. That's Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. There's a great application to that. If the Lord's not protecting your house, then your burglar alarm system, the 45 by your bedside, everything else is irrelevant. Now, that doesn't mean you don't get a burglar alarm system. That doesn't mean you don't have a 45 by your bedside. But it means that ultimately our protection is in the Lord. It's not in these other things. That doesn't mean you don't do those things. You don't, you, you know, you, you don't drive your car till the gas is empty, just be, the gas tank's empty, just because you think, well, the Lord's going to get me where I want to go. You do what you can do under your responsibility, but you ultimately you trust in the Lord. So if you're worried about your house being broken into, ultimately you trust in the Lord. You do everything you can. If you forget on occasion to lock the door, turn on the burglar alarm, or you know, jack a shell in the chamber or whatever, then the Lord's still the one who protects you. And he's the one who's going to watch over things. And if you do all those things, I wonder what the statistics are. How many houses get burglarized by somebody who knows they have a burglar alarm system, they get in there, uh, whatever it is, you've done everything you can to protect it, and you still get broken in two, and you lose everything. Okay, ultimately, the protection is in the Lord. The Lord has to be the one to build our life, not us. And we have to put our trust in him. That doesn't mean we disengage and go passive or mystic. It means we, we do what we're supposed to do, but we trust in the Lord to bring about the fruition of what he's done. Okay, the, the, the third line in the, in the poetry I smile at my enemies is one that is translated a lot of different ways. It's, it's an awkward and odd idiom. What does it mean, I smile at my enemies? That's how the New King James translates it. This, if you look at the bottom of the slide, we see in italics here some of the different ways the phrase is translated. The New American Standard in the 95 edition says, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Literally, it, it, literally, it means my mouth is wide. But what does that mean? My mouth is wide at my enemies. So uh, the new, uh, I think it's the New English translation, the Net Bible tra- translates it, I loudly denounce my, my enemies. And I think that that fits the context. I think that they probably captured the idea there is that she's boasting in the Lord. She's praising in the Lord that he has delivered her over her enemies. And they have not had victory over her. So I think that that is what fits the context here is that she denounces her enemies because she's boasting, uh, boasting in the Lord. So this is how the NET translates it. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted high because of the Lord. I'd loudly denounce my enemies, for I am happy that you delivered me. And so she is expressing her great and tremendous joy 
at the Lord that he has given her victory over her enemies. Now, when we think about this and we think about how she expresses this, it reminds us that we have enemies as well. As Christians, as believers, we have three basic enemies. The enemies may not be the people that you think they are, okay? They're not the people that you think they are. They're just a manifestation of the three enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh is that enemy inside of us. It's our sin nature. And the temptations and the lust patterns that come from our sin nature that we yield to so easily, that's the first and the most effective enemy against us. The other two are external. One is Satan, who is the goes about, as Peter tells us, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's always out cruising, either directly or indirectly through, through demons, cruising the earth to see who he can test or tempt, who he can devour like a roaring, like a roaring lion. And so we have the Satan and the uh, demonic forces as our enemy. And then third, we have the world system, which is basically the cosmic system, the the human culture that is set totally against God, all of the ideas, values, and thoughts that are set against the Word of God, all the rationalizations that justify uh, yielding to our sin nature. So we face these three enemies, the our own sin nature, Satan, and then the the world system. Now, in Ephesians, Paul puts it this way that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. If you've got a problem with a human being, you put their name there. They're not the problem. That's what Paul is saying. The problem is not whomever you think is out to get you. The problem is greater than that. It has to do with demonic forces that are influencing human history and are influencing things against us. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. These terms all describe different levels of authorities in the hierarchy of Satan's demonic forces. And he says, therefore, here's the solution. It's not to go out and punch Satan in the nose. You know, I've seen some of these deliverance ministries on TV where they they get all dramatic and excited and they're going to go out and punch the devil and give him a black eye and all this kind of nonsense. That's arrogance. The Bible says that the solution isn't for the believer to do one-on-one combat with demonic forces or with Satan. We are to put on the defensive armor of God and God fights the battle. The victory is the Lord. So we put on the whole armor of God that you may stand. Stand is a defensive position. It's not an offensive action. That we may stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We stand in the power of the Lord. It's Psalm 18.2. We recognize all those are protection metaphors that God is our fortress, he's our rock, he's our our defense, he's our shield, our fortress, our buckler, all of these things. He is the one who surrounds us and protects us, and the battle is the Lord's, it's not my battle. That takes us through verse 1. Next week, we'll come back and look at verse 2. 
No one is like God. We'll get into the incomprehensibility and the uniqueness of God. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, study these things and to reflect upon this this magnificent uh, uh, psalm and this uh, victory hymn that Hannah wrote. And we pray that we can learn many things from this as it applies to our own life as we face the adversities and challenges that are before us. So we recognize that you are the only source of happiness the only source of joy, and the only source of stability in life, and that we need to learn that you and you alone are our fortress, our rock, our deliverer. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.